Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So we do start in uh, 2 Kings 15, verse 32. Um, just to remind you a little bit, here's the, here's the chart, the timeline of our kings. Uh, so we talked just briefly about the, the fact that we've got Manahem, we've got Pekahiah, we've got Pekah. But notice for Pekah, it says that he rules from 752 to 732. And that's what the scripture tells us, that he reigns for 20 years from 752 to 732. But that means he's ruling, his reign starts at the same time that Manahem does. And goes through Pekahiah's reign. And so what most people have come to, uh, the, the best sort of guess about why he would be ruling at the same time is that he was some sort of officer or commander or army leader for Manahem. Manahem appointed him when he became king. But then in reality, he was so powerful that he sort of granted uh, credit <laughs> for having been king during all this time. We do know that after Pekahiah is in charge for two years, it's Pekah who kills him um, and then takes over the, the, the kingship. So it does make sense that he kind of ruled uh, agreeably with Manahem all this time, but then when, when Manahem's son took over, Pekka thought, nope, that should be mine. Organized a conspiracy and a coup, took a couple years to do it, got rid of Pekahiah, and then he rules. So that, that's just the kind of thing that happens. You see these kind of co-regency <coughs> things come up. Same thing happens with Jotham. Jotham actually reigns during the fair amount of Uzziah's reign. The most logical explanation to that is that he starts reigning when Uzziah gets leprosy. Um, and, uh, and he actually sort of takes the mantle at that point, which does mean, if that's the case, that Uzziah lives for about 10 years uh, after he gets leprosy before he actually dies, which is certainly reasonable. Um, but where we are in our stories today are on this side of the, the chart. We're not getting into Hosea. By the way, Hosea, the king, is not connected to Hosea the prophet. Uh, they just live at the same time, so you'll see both their names interact. This is probably one of those things where your scripture probably calls him Hosea and calls the prophet Hosea just to keep it straight, although really they're the same names. Okay? Um, so we don't get there. We're in this area here where we've Jotham and Ahaz and Pekah are the people that we're mostly focused on today as we move forward. 2 Kings 15, 32 through 38. In the second year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. As for the other events of Jotham's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, against Judah. That's just a little parenthetical phrase that's, that's thrown in here. Remember that. That's going to be important to, to some of Isaiah's prophecies and our stories. It's basically telling us that the king of Aram... Okay, just a few reminders. King of Aram and Damascus for a long time were hounding Israel and Judah. Okay. Remember, Ben-Hadad was actually part of this, this Aram-Damascus group, was hounding Judah. Um, but then they got themselves, Aram and Damascus, got attacked by Assyria. 
And so they got weaker. And then what happens is the king of Aram, whose name is Rezin, and the king of uh, Israel, who is Pekah, they actually make an alliance against Assyria and try to hold Assyria back. So that's what this is talking about. But what happens is they actually end up attacking Judah. So we'll get to that in a second. Or not a second, but in a little bit. Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, the city of his father, and Ahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. So 2 Chronicles 27, 1 through 9 gives us a little bit more detail. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done, but unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. So this is saying, remember, Uzziah did really well until the end when he went into the temple and tried to do his own thing. And this is saying he did, he did just like his father, but better. <laughs> okay, he didn't fade at the end in the same way. The people, however, continued their corrupt practices. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord and did extensive work on the wall at the hill of Ophel. He built towns in the hill country of Judah and forts and towers in the wooded areas. Jotham waged war against the king of the Ammonites and conquered them. That year, the Ammonites paid him 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 cores of barley. The Ammonites brought him the same amount also in the second and third years. Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. The other events in Jotham's reign, including all his wars and the other things he did, are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. And Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, and Ahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. Okay, so that just sets our time frame. So Ahaz is king, and Pekah is king, um, and Jotham has done a good job, but the people continue to be corrupt. He didn't remove the high places, um, but he did well in lots of other respects and had a fairly successful reign. So we're going to look at Micah 1 is where we are. We come up to Micah. So we've already looked at Isaiah 6. We saw his call. Remember, was that vision with the, the cherub or the seraphim, specifically it says, with the seraphim and, and God on the throne. So we, we had that vision. Now we're going to dip into Micah, who is a, a, a contemporary of Isaiah. Micah tends to speak most of his prophecies to Judah, to the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and he is around during the reigns of uh, well, where we are, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Um, he prophesies, like, Israel, like Isaiah, he prophesies destruction to Samaria and Jerusalem. Um, so Samaria being the capital of Israel and Jerusalem being the capital of Judah. So he's prophesying about both, that they're both going to be judged and they're both going to be destroyed. Um, he preaches both kings are going to be conquered and both are going to be exiled. And, and he preaches a lot of the same messages that Isaiah preaches, they're, which makes sense. That's the message of the day, and God is using more than one person to preach it. And that message is, return to the covenant. Remember the God of your covenant and start following the laws. And one of the ways that you're not following the laws is you're not taking care of the poor. In fact, you're, you're taking advantage of the poor, which is not the same thing. Um, and, uh, and sure enough, he starts preaching this about the fall of Samaria, the fall of Jerusalem. We find that Samaria falls in 722 B.C. and Jerusalem falls in 587 B.C. We're going to get to both those points. And like Isaiah, he alternates his message occasionally with promises of restoration. So God wants to make it clear that there's going to be judgment, but that there will be restoration as well. He will bring people back. Um, Micah specifically credits any restoration to God's compassion. He at no point says, you guys are going to get your act together. 
<laughs> he says, you're never going to get your act together, but God's going to be compassionate and bring you back anyway because he made a promise. So he will always save a remnant of people. And Micah speaks of a Messiah. He also makes some messianic prophecies, but the Messiah he speaks of is the king, uh, is a righteous king um, who will come bring righteousness and light. And remember, we talked about Isaiah talks a lot about a, a Messiah who will suffer uh, on behalf of his people, who will be a suffering servant. And so you have these two conflicting pictures of the Messiah given by two prominent prophets at the same time. And probably there's a reason for that. Uh, let's see. Okay, so Micah 1, 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to, came to Micah of Morasheth. This is another country prophet. This is like Amos. This is a guy who's just out in the, in the middle of the, the fields, in the middle of the country somewhere. Um, he's, not, he's not in the middle. He's not in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may be bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath them and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. You remember we talked about the great earthquake that Isaiah prophesies, and this may be some of that as well. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? This is an interesting point he's making. So if you're in Judah and you're feeling superior to Israel, if you're feeling just a little self-righteous, you might go about it this way. You might say, we worship in the temple like we're supposed to. They worship in Samaria where they're not supposed to. That makes us better. And, and Micah says this really interesting thing. He says, really, isn't Jerusalem just your high place? For all the worship you actually do of God in it, it's just like it's Samaria. So don't get all high and mighty about the fact that you happen to be in the right geographic locale because you're not really worshiping God either. It's kind of the point he's making here. Jerusalem's just another high place for you. Um, is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable, and it has spread to Judah. The other thing we see in Micah, as he gets on Judah a little bit here for maybe some self-righteousness, thinking that they're kind of going to escape the judgment, is he takes no glee in the judgment he's preaching. You see that? He says, because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. In other words, he's saying, this grieves me. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to wail and moan. And I'm going to wail and moan for Israel and for Judah. And so there's no glee in this. There's no sense of self-righteousness on his point either. He's like, this is not something that we should be happy about. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. So he's saying Gath is a Philistine city. So he's basically saying, he's basically saying, I, I don't think he really means this. But he's saying, don't let Gath know how bad it's going to be for us. I think all he's saying is, it's very sad that Gath is going to be gloating. Right? 
not only should we not be gloating over Israel because we're also going to be bad, but boy, I hope with Gaff, and of course he knows they're going to hear of it, but he's essentially making a point and saying, boy, I hope Gaff never hears of it because they're just going to be happy about this. So don't tell them. Don't, don't weep. Don't let them know. Now, now Micah begins to do something really interesting, and the question is why? And I don't know that I know the answer, except that maybe it's because he thinks he'll get more attention, that people will listen to him better. He begins to list a lot of Judaic uh, towns in Judah. Judaic? Ju Ju I don't know what the right form of that is. What, Judaic? Judean. Yes, of course. Thank you. He starts to list a lot of Judean towns. <laughs> um, and, but what he does is he lists the towns, and then he makes puns. So he's about to go into a list of wordplay. He's going to say, this is what's going to happen to this town. And what he's going to say is going to happen to them is a play on the name of the town, which feels almost sort of like, is he, it's a weird thing to make wordplay out of, right? I mean, this is a really tragic prophecy. So all I can imagine is he's kind of hoping it'll be a mnemonic. He's, happening, he's hoping that the people in these towns will remember. They'll remember their name. And every time they hear their name, they'll think, ooh, we're in danger of this thing happening to us that he talked about. And so I think that's what it's for. I don't think he's trying to be flippant or funny or, ha-ha, look how clever I am. Well, I think, he's kind of hitting upon their pride. Right. Yeah, I think he's saying you. I think the other thing he's doing is he's showing God's sovereignty. Because if their name is going to be so connected to what happens to them in the judgment, a name that they may have had for hundreds of years, doesn't that show God's sovereignty, right? Doesn't that show that God knew from the beginning, from when they were named, what was going to happen to them? So I think he's showing God knows what's going on. And yes, every time you hear your name, instead of pride, maybe you'll start to think a little bit about the warning. So I'm just thinking even like before when they were saying like with comparing Jerusalem and like Samaria and then just the, even the idea that like Gath will even like kind of make fun of you. Right. Yep. So he says this, in Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. And Ophrah is a pun for the word dust. So he says, your name is dust. Well, you should roll in the dust in mourning and in grief. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Shafir. Shafir is a word which means beautiful. So he's saying, you think you're so beautiful? Guess what? You're gonna, people are going to pass by you and they're going to be ashamed of what you look like. You're going to be naked and ashamed. I did. No worries. Uh, those who live in Zainan will not come out. Zainan means exit or go out. So he's saying, you're not even going to be able to leave. And in fact, Zainan becomes a, a, a place that is under siege for a while. So it's the same idea. Your name is leave, and you won't even be able to leave. Beth Azel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Beth Azel is a, is a name which means nearby city. And basically he's saying Beth Azel will be near to nobody. It will be, no, it will be of no help to anybody. You won't be able to... Leave Bethazel and go to your neighboring city. Bethazel will be isolated and alone and in mourning, and Bethazel will not be able to protect its neighbors. Those who live in Marath writhe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem, and Marath means bitterness. So writhing in pain and bitterness are similar ideas. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. Lachish means, guess what? Horses. So you're named horses, you better be getting some fast horses. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Morasheth Goth. Morasheth Goth means betrothed. Now this, by the way, 
Do you recognize the name Morishev? We read it about eight or nine verses earlier. It's where Mike is from, so it's his hometown. So that's not a pleasant thing to preach about your hometown. So he says, basically, he says, look, the Lachish better get some, some fast chariots. And then he says, and then he just moves it into the next one and says, basically, you'll be giving parting gifts to Morisheth Gath, meaning, uh, meaning betrothed. I think the idea being that right now Morisheth belongs to Jerusalem and Judah and ostensibly God, but it's about to be passed over to somebody else. Someone else is going to own this city. The team of Askeb will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel, which is exactly what Akzib means. By the way, when I say means, these are puns, so some of these are similar words. They aren't the exact word. Should be clear about that. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marashah. Marashah means possessor. So he's saying the possessor will be possessed. You will be conquered. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. This is interesting. Abdullah, this is not a pun on his name, but what's interesting is Abdullah is known historically and would have been known by, by the Judeans, now that I know how to use that word, thank you, Charlie, um, would have been known by the Judeans um, as the place where David fled from King Saul and went to hide. So it's a, it's a refuge. It's been a refuge for, for noble people like David, and he's saying the noble of Israel will flee to Abdullah. They'll be fleeing there. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. So the nobles will flee there, but will it do them any good? No, because where will they go from there? Into exile. They're going to get caught anyway. So unlike David, who fled there and found refuge, the nobles will flee there again, but they will find no refuge there. So, you, so much for your, being a, you know, your pride in being a refuge for the nobleman. Is this... You're saying nobleman, but it seemed like before it seemed like he was actually the noble people as in good people as opposed to a piper. Yeah, he says the nobles of Israel. I think here he means the, the yeah, I think he means people. I think he means the kings. Okay. I think he means the high people. So that's the first chapter of Micah's prophecy. So we learn from him that he's got a lot of uh, warnings to give. Hey, Pam. <laughs> we hoped you were alive. Yeah. <laughs> Just that you accept the title, you gotta accept the responsibility. I understand. Yes, Meredith. Oh, I was just say it's kind of cool because like these towns probably kind of find their identity, like in like their name and like what's happened there and stuff like that. And it's just like God's just like blowing it out of the yep. water. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. This is what they take pride in. This is what they're clinging to. But because they've stopped clinging to their real identity, which is the God of the covenant and the covenant that they're part of, God's going to take all these things that is their identity, is going to turn them on their head. And uh, that's, that's what Micah's telling. And so that's our introduction to Micah. That's the last we'll see of him tonight. We'll come, obviously come back to him later. Yes, Joseph. Oh, please. What did I miss? Oh, okay. Uh, shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. I did read that. Yeah. Oh, did I miss that? You oh, did. So now we've read it twice, which is great. <laughs> no worries, it's okay. Maybe skip it in 10 years. Yeah, I'll skip it when I come back to it in 10 years. Yeah, I'll remember well, that. I don't know what if different people are here. It'll just be too bad. I'll say so. <laughs> Joseph ruined this all for you. We cannot read this verse. I don't think that's the rule, are you? 
that I can't read things twice. <laughs> anyway, yes. No, I did because that's where I said they were going to get to get there to refuge, but then they were going to end up in exile anywhere. Anyway. No worries. No worries. Second Kings 16 is where we are now. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Amalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So one of the things we know way back when they were first coming in, God said, God made a lot of things that are, are difficult for us to understand, but one of the things he said was, was wipe out, in certain cities he said, wipe them all out, don't leave any of them. And as we discussed that, we pointed out that one of the reasons for that is because they had reached such a level of depravity where they, they were regularly doing child sacrifices, and, to, and they, were, they were destroying themselves from the inside, and it was kind of a mercy of God to wipe them out in some ways. And so now we're finding out that Ahaz is following those most detestable practices. He actually takes his own child and sacrifices him, uh, as a, to, presumably as a way to gain the favor of gods like Mola, um, who, uh, who some of the Canaanite god people would have worshipped. after he's um, in allegiance with um, Aram? Because they did that. No, because okay. Ahaz, this is... This is Ahaz, and Ahaz is never in allegiance with Aram. This is the, God, this is the king of Judah. Okay. I know it gets confusing after a while. Why do you think he went where. all the way back to David? Oh, because when you talk about doing evil, you talk about Jeroboam, and when you talk about doing right, you talk about David usually. Okay. It's not that unusual. They didn't do that with, uh, well, with the last like one. But yeah, sometimes they do. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't talk about... Um, Jotham. I don't know why they didn't talk about Jotham, because Jotham was good, but uh, let's see. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incenses at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. I think the idea is he's not just doing a little of this. He is full-blown, idol-worshipping, false god-sacrificing He's, he's kind of the Ahab of the Judah kings, right? And it's not just kind of half-heartedly to appease people. It's yeah, not, seems like he's really yeah, into we'll it. give some money over here. And he's coming off of the heels of Jotham, who turned a corner the other direction, and so he's completely undoing everything Jotham did. Um, then Razan, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Amalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Eloth for Aram by driving out the people of Judah. Edomites then moved into Eloth and have lived there to this day. Ahab, okay, so there's, here's what's about to happen. And I'm trying to decide when to tell you the story. We'll wait. We'll summarize it in a second, but just to give you a heads up. We're going to get three different perspectives of the same story. We're going to get the king's perspective. We're going to get the chronicle's perspective. And we're going to get Isaiah's perspective. And they're all the same story, and they're not, they're not contradictory, but they definitely focus on different things. So here in the, in the uh, King's version, we're in King's, right? Thank you. Here in the King's version, it's, it's fairly brief. It tells us that Razan, king of Aram, and 
Pekah, son of Remaliah, so that's the king of Aram and the king of Israel. They attack Judah, but they don't overpower him. They don't win, is what we're told. Chronicles is going to give us a, a details which tell us that they really, they may not win, but they do cause a fair amount of damage. We're going to get to that in a second, all right? And Isaiah is actually going to tell us how both of these stories are true, how they weren't overcome, but they were damaged, and how things could have been differently if Ahaz had responded differently. So Isaiah is going to give us a peek behind the curtain after we've kind of seen the stories. All right. At one point, I'm just going to give you a summary because piecing the story together only happens when you read all three, and so it's easy to get lost. So I will give you a summary at some point, and then you'll see it in Isaiah, but just to keep going from here. So they go up to fight, but they couldn't overpower him. So then they, they, they take some other area of Judah, not all of Judah, but they take some of it, the Edomites move in there. And then Ahaz sent messengers to say to tiglath Pileser. now tiglath Pileser is the king of Assyria. He's the one that's going to ultimately conquer uh, Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, pardon me, Israel, Samaria. So tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, he sent a message to him saying, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. So already even in the king's portion, it says they weren't able to overcome him, but that's like a, remember, I'm going to mention this, I haven't mentioned this for a while, the Hebrew way of writing stories, the chronology is often a little bit weird for us. It's, it's just because we're different. It's not weird to them. The way they do it is they often give a summary and then they give the details. So the summary is that the Aram and Israel didn't win. But part of the details in 2 Kings is the reason they didn't win is because he made an alliance with Assyria, which you can probably guess is a bad idea. Okay? So... Save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kir and put Rezin to death. So this is a short form of what happened in Kings. They go in to attack Judah. Judah calls out to Assyria, pays him, basically hires the king of Assyria to fight on his behalf. The king of Assyria defeats Damascus, which breaks the alliance between Israel and Damascus, um, and then puts the king of Aram to death. Okay? That's the story um, as told by 2 Kings. Not incompatible with what we're going to read in Chronicles, but there's a whole lot more detail in Chronicles, so let's go on. 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. So he actually made idols for that. He burned sacrifices, apparently including his own son, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and, sacri- oh, says that here, sorry, and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Therefore, the Lord his God delivered him, delivered him into the hands of the king of Aram. So right off the bat, king says they didn't win. Chronicle says they were delivered to the king of Aram. So let's keep reading and see if we can understand how it could be said that they didn't win. The Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hands of the king of Israel, who inflicted heavy casualties on him. In one day, Pekah son of Remaliah killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Zikri, an Ephraimite warrior, killed Messiah, the king's son. Apparently the one he hit destroyed in the fire. Azrakam, the officer in charge of the palace, and Elkanah, second to the king. 
the men of Israel took captive from their fellow Israelites who were from Judah 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. They also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. All right, so we have two stories. So far, they don't sound compatible. They, they will become so. But so far, we have in Kings a story where it simply says they were attacked by Aram and Israel, and they called out to Assyria, and then Aram was destroyed, and so Judah survived. Here we have a story, and we're only partway through the story, where in the midst of the battle, they appear to have completely lost. They've had 100,000 soldiers killed. They've lost a lot of women and children. And they appear to be all prisoners and defeated. It looks like it's over. And if it was over, this would be completely incompatible stories. But this isn't the end of the story, because here's what happens next. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there, and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. And he said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow Israelites you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Then some of the leaders in Ephraim, Azariah, son of Jehonan, Berechiah, son of Milshmah, Jehazekiah, son of Shalom, and Amasa, son of Haldai, confronted those who were arriving from the war. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and guilt? For our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. And the men designated by name took the prisoners and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink and healing balm. And all those who were weak they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. So it's a weird turn of events. So what happens is they do win. But then when they get back to Samaria, God's like, uh-uh, take it all back. <laughs> now, they can't return the people they've killed, right? So it's not like there wasn't some major destruction on Judah. There was. But nonetheless, all the prisoners are returned, which, which is a way of basically saying, so you had this battle, you won this battle, but you do not get to keep Judah. You did not overcome. You did not succeed. So that part's compatible, but now we have the question of where's the whole Assyria Tilgath Pelisar part come in? Right? Because this was God who did this and not Assyria. Enter Isaiah. Isaiah will clarify for us what exactly happened. And, and it's one of those moments where we remember that in truth, in life, as in scripture, you always have a choice of when you look at what happens in your life, you can credit the immediate causes to certain things around you. But you can also credit the causes to God ultimately. And both are correct. <coughs> but it makes a difference which you do and who you credit. And so that's kind of what we're going to see. And that's kind of what Isaiah's point is. So we're on Isaiah 7. Remember, we haven't even read Isaiah 1 through 5 yet. Because we started with Isaiah 6 because that's when Isaiah is called. And then Isaiah 7 is the first prophecy he gives right after he's called. And then eventually we go back to 1 through 5 to get the other prophecies. And I'll remind you what I said before which is that we're doing this chronologically because it helps us get the story. But the reason that Isaiah himself probably put his scroll in the order he did, which is where he has the message before he talks about himself and how he became the messenger, is because that's what's important. What's important is the message. And the messenger is secondary to Isaiah and in truth. 
But for us, to get the story, we're reading it in this order. Okay, so here's Isaiah. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Rumalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Okay, so he starts with the king's version, right? He just tells us, here it is. But this is Isaiah being a Hebrew. This is the summary. He's going to give us the details. He, so it doesn't go from here to talk about what happens after they didn't overpower it. Now he's going to talk about what, it, what he means when he says they didn't overpower it. And this is where I just want to give you a summary. Because piecing together Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah can get confusing. So let me give you the summary, and then as we read Isaiah, it, you'll see it. It will make sense, okay? So here's the summary. Here's what actually happens. So Aram, remember that Aram and Damascus were attacking Israel and Judah. And then Assyria attacked Aram and Damascus, and so they kind of laid off Israel and Judah. Well, now what happens is that Rezin, who's the king of Aram, and Pekah, who's the king of Israel, they make an alliance to fight against Assyria because that's the new bigger threat, okay? So Aram and Ephraim is how, Israel con is how Isaiah continually refers to Israel, by the way. He just calls them Ephraim. <coughs> some, of my, some of the prophets call them Samaria. He calls them Ephraim. There's a lot of shorthands for how you want to call <laughs> Israel versus Judah. So when you see Ephraim, he means Israel. So Aram and Ephraim, they create, create an alliance against Assyria. They go to Judah and they say to Ahaz, join us in this alliance against Assyria. And Ahaz says, why should I? I don't need you. Go away. To which Pekah and Rezin respond by attacking Judah. Okay? That's how we get to this point. So they, they say, if you're not with us, then you must be against us. So they attack Judah to clear that out first. Ultimately, or at the moment, when they attack Judah, they do incredible damage, as we saw in Chronicles. They kill 120,000 soldiers, they take all these women, and they bring them back to Samaria. But then Oded, this prophet, says, uh-uh, you're not bringing them in here. And there's enough other people who are listening to the prophet that say, don't bring them in here. That they end up, and notice how weird it is. This is how much of a miracle it is. It's not just like they let them go. They actually dress them and clothe them and feed them. Basically, they're treating them like, oh, we didn't mean to take you prisoner. <laughs> right? I mean, that's really what it's like. It's like they're trying to make them right. They're trying to make them whole. They can only do it to a degree. Lots of people are dead. But they're trying to make them whole, and they send them back. So that's, that's what happens there. Well, nonetheless, Ahaz is standing there realizing that Israel and Aram are a big threat to him because they just easily defeated him. Despite the miracle of the prisoners returning, Ahaz has a devastated kingdom right now. And so Isaiah comes to Ahaz, and this is what we're going to see, and he says to Ahaz, don't worry. It's God who sent the prisoners back. In fact, if that's not enough for you, ask for another sign and God will show you that he's going to protect you. He's not going to let Israel and Aram defeat you. Trust me. To which Ahaz says, no. <laughs> I don't trust you. So then what does Ahaz do? He reaches out to Tilgath Pelizer, pays him a bunch of money, and says, I trust you. 
to protect me. And that's where we have the rest of the king's story, where the, the king of Assyria then conquers Aram, and Ahaz thinks, all's well that ends well. And Isaiah comes in to say, you could not be more wrong. <laughs> you blew it. You hitched your wagon to the wrong horse. Because Assyria's going to come back. Do you think they're going to let you be when they destroy Israel? Do you think you're going to be safe now? And are you happy that you just sold Israel to Assyria? I mean, there's lots of things here. I have questions about, says Isaiah. So that's how the stories fit together. They're attacked. They're sort of defeated. But then God does this miracle where they end up undoing their defeat and basically surrender and giving everything back. And then Isaiah says, let this be assigned to you and trust me. And Ahaz says, don't trust you. And so he calls to Assyria. And, I, and I, then Isaiah's prophecy is about now you're really in trouble. That's how all these stories play together. Okay? So now let's read Isaiah's prophecy and you'll kind of see all these people <coughs> in there. All right. Here we go. Now, the house of David was told. Now, this is interesting. You asked why they go back to David. And in this case, it's even more significant question. Why are we calling Ahaz the house of David? We've already been told he did not live like David. <laughs> he did not work like David. Now, we know he's of the lineage of David. Because this is one of the things that's still true of the Judah kings, the Judean kings. They are, in fact, of the lineage of David. Whereas in Israel, who know, at this point, they're pretty far afield from that, right? But the Judean kings still have that lineage in place. God has preserved it in weird ways, but he's preserved it. Remember how all of the, at one point, they looked like all the children were killed, but then the priest had actually saved one of the lineage of David and brought him back, and then it's continued from there. So they preserved it. So... He says house of David because Isaiah is trying to remind Judah who they are. That, that just like Micah took all these people's prideful identities and turned them on their head, Isaiah is saying, listen, Judah, forget everything else that you think you know about who you are. All that matters is you're the house of David. You're of the covenant of God. That's who you should be. All right? And we're going to see him talk a lot about things that relate to that. All right, so let's keep going. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub. Now, Shir Jashub is a child that Isaiah is supposed to take with him on this prophetic mission. That's probably not typical, I'm guessing. As a prophet, you don't usually grab one of your kids and take him with you, right? Because you might both die, among other things. Shir Joshua means a remnant shall return. So God sends Isaiah with his son, whose name is a remnant shall return, <laughs> to Judah to talk to them about the house of David and God preserving a remnant. Okay. Go out, you and your son, Shir Joshua, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. The word keep calm is actually shut up. So it's kind of like he's saying, be careful and close your mouth and listen for a second. <laughs> okay? Which he doesn't do. But don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. So Aram and Israel look like burning rages, right? As they come in and they destroy and carry off 200,000 or whatever number of women it is, they look like major fires across the land. Isaiah says they're just smoldering stubs. Don't be fooled. Okay. 
because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tobiel king over it. Now, the son of Tobiel actually refers probably to a guy named Tobiel, who later becomes the king of Tyre. So they have this puppet, basically, that they want to install in Judah. And when they fail to do that, they later install him in Tyre. But their initial plan is to put him over here. Yet, so Isaiah says, look, this is their plan. You're right. They're, they're planning to come destroy you and put someone in, in place. But what does it mean if they succeed in doing this? Then you don't have someone from the house. Then you don't have the lineage of David anymore. Then you don't have the house of David. So, so <coughs> Isaiah is coming to the king and saying, look, we know this is what they're saying they're going to do. By the way, have you met my son? A remnant shall return to remind you that God will always <laughs> preserve his lineage. <laughs> So don't be afraid. Because this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Some prophecies are clear. Some are not. Where does this fit in that category? That's pretty clear. He's just like God says it's not going to happen. <laughs> it will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to even be a people. So he's saying this. He's saying, listen, you're all worried about them, but the head of Aram is just Damascus, and the head of Damascus is just a person. It's just a man. And as far as Israel goes, they're going to be so shattered within the next 60 years, you have nothing to fear from them. Just be patient. And have you met my son? A remnant shall be preserved. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. He's very clear with Ahaz. Look, you want to stand? You want to make it through this? Trust God. And part of what Isaiah is trying to communicate, and part of what God is trying to communicate through Isaiah, is I'm not telling you to trust God because you're a good king, because he's a terrible king. Right? We know this. I'm telling you to trust God because God has made a promise which is bigger than you, that he will preserve the remnant that the Messiah has to come through you guys. So relax, because there are things that are bigger than you know, bigger than you. But this is what Ahaz either is ignorant about, either he just doesn't know the promises, or more likely, since he had a righteous father, he just doesn't believe them. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God says to Ahaz, do you need help? Do you need something to firm your faith? Ask for it, and I'll give it to you. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. I love the self-righteous sounding reason, right? Oh, I'm being so good. Look, God asked you to ask. When my parents, when my parents... I'm the parent in this story. When my kids... <laughs> forgot for a moment who's what. <laughs> when, when my kids disobey me and use my words as an excuse for disobeying me, which does happen, it's the most ludicrous thing ever. You're just like, okay, stop. You're going to choose to obey that and not what I'm telling you right this moment, and you think somehow that's smart? That's what Ahaz is doing. He's like, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Isaiah's like, I just asked you to ask him 
for a sign. God is waiting for you to ask him for a sign. He's got a sign ready. In fact, it's not clear. It's possible that this is after they've already had all the people come back, or maybe it's after they've been captured just before they're going to come back. Maybe God's like already going to do the sign regardless. But if he hasn't asked for it, then he would have seen it differently, wouldn't he? Then he would have known, oh, this is a miracle from God. This is a sign that God's protecting me. Or maybe it's a different sign. But whatever it is, he is going to give a different sign too. We're going to see that in a second. But whatever it is, Ahaz stubbornly refuses to do it. And it's not because he's honoring God. Why do we know that? Because he doesn't honor God. <laughs> right? He's just using whatever justification he had. Why doesn't he want it? Because he doesn't want to have to trust God. He wants to be able to justify that God's not trustworthy. And if he asks for a sign, he might become convinced. This is, like the, this is like Jonah taken to the worst extreme, right? Jonah didn't want to do what God told him to do because he was afraid if he did, God would be God and he would see God's graciousness and that would be bad. Well, Ahaz is kind of like that only works. He's like, I don't want to ask God to show me a sign because then he might show me one and then I don't have any excuse for not trusting him. But I've already decided I'm not going to trust him. That's, that's really what's happening there. And Isaiah knows it. So then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Again, reminding him, these promises are not about you. They go beyond you. They started before you were born. They will go past your death. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? You are so annoying to the people that you rule. And you're annoying to me. But the really bad thing is, you're annoying to God. <laughs> Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's a verse that many of us have heard in another context, and it's an appropriate context, but let's talk about it in the context it's in first, and then talk about how it also applies to the context we're given in the New Testament. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So he's talking to Ahaz, right? He's saying, you didn't ask for a sign, but God is going to give you one. Okay? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Okay, here's what he's saying. First of all, let's deal with this word virgin. This would indeed be a crazy thing if he's saying to Ahaz, to him, there's going to be a virgin who's going to give birth in your land. Okay, this gets complicated, but well, not too much. I think this will work. Virgin is a word which can be translated young maiden. Sometimes people use this to talk about how it was misunderstood in the New Testament and there really wasn't a virgin birth. That's not where I'm going, so don't get ahead of me. I think it was a virgin birth. But it is true that this word virgin can be translated young maiden. In fact, the literal word is young maiden. Here's the other truth, though. In every context in the Old Testament, except possibly here, young maiden is always used to mean virgin which is why it's reasonable to think that's what it usually means. What it probably means here is a young maiden who is currently a virgin, <laughs> okay, is going to be not a virgin <laughs> at some point, give birth to a child, and before that child reaches the age of being weaned, that's what this is about, before he's eating curds and honey, before he even knows what's right or wrong, when he's still too young, to, to eat solid food and know what's right and wrong, the two lands that you're afraid of will be laid to waste. What is the sign he's giving him? The sign he's giving him is a, is a timeline. Have you ever wanted a timeline? I have. All the time. 
right? Just tell me how long I have to endure this, <laughs> right? That's the sign he's giving, right? He's saying, here's the sign. There's going to be a baby born soon. And that baby who is born will not reach the age of understanding. So, within a couple years. Before these two lands are laid to waste. But what's wrong with that sign? It means you've got to wait to see if it's true. <laughs> right? It's a, it's a sign, but it's only a sign if you start with faith. He didn't ask for a sign to bolster his faith, so God gives him a sign which will prove his faith. But it doesn't help him right now unless he's willing to take a step of faith to begin with. You see that? Okay. As far as this being used in the New Testament, how do we know that this is a messianic prophecy applying to Jesus? Because the New Testament tells us. Because Matthew tells us. Because by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, this is what was said. It's also Matthew who tells us that what the word means is virgin. I think it's entirely in keeping with the way God tends to do prophecy that this prophecy has two meanings all at the same time. And one of them is for Ahaz, and it means a young maiden will give birth to a child, and before that child is of a certain age, these lands will be laid waste. But it has a second meaning, and the second meaning is a virgin will give birth to a child, and this child will be God with us. And both are true. The reason I think that's even more likely, well, the New Testament, explains a lot. But another reason I think it's likely at this point that there's both a messianic prophecy and a current prophecy is because this entire conversation between Isaiah and Ahaz is a mixture of promises that God is making about the Messiah to come and promises that he's making to Ahaz now. You see that? So at the same time that he's saying to Ahaz, Here, this will be a sign to you, Isaiah, whether he knows it or not, is also saying... The sign is that God's promises, again, are bigger than you. God has to preserve a remnant because the Messiah has to come. And that Messiah with that virgin birth can't come if God lets you get destroyed. So chill. So both signs are for Ahaz in one sense, but both of them require that he look ahead with faith. <laughs> he has to trust that there is a Messiah coming. He has to trust that God will preserve his remnant. And by the way, have you met my son? He has to trust these things in order to see them. But he's clearly not inclined to do that. All right. Uh, let's see. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any sense Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. But now, here's where it gets to be a warning. Because here he is saying to him, you didn't ask for a sign. You could have asked for a sign. Here's a sign anyway. If you live by faith, you'll see God's hand in it. But this is kind of like when Elijah was prophesying to Ben-Hadad, and, he and as he's prophesying, he knows what's going to happen anyway. And he's like, well, you're not listening to me, and you're going to kill that guy anyway. It's kind of like that with Isaiah. He's like, here's if you live by faith, here's what you'd see. But then he's like, but you're not listening to me anyway. So when Assyria comes, he's going to destroy you also. So it makes no sense to make an alliance with Assyria, unless you don't believe Isaiah, which clearly he doesn't. So this is what he says. He says, The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any sense Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. It so happens that as Assyria begins to come down and attack, Egypt also comes from the other side and kind of pins Judah between the two of them. And so that's what the whistling for flies from Egypt and the bees from Assyria are both. They're going to have them both coming at the same time. 
They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices in the rocks and in all the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. And in that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria. So in case, again, I love the fact that Isaiah is actually pretty clear in his prophecies. He's like, it's going to hire a razor. And by razor, I mean the king of Assyria. <laughs> Just in case you missed him. Uh, to shave your heads and private parts and to cut off your beards also. This is all extremely humiliating. This is a sign of submission. This is a sign of slavery. This is signs of domination. This is the kind of cruel humiliation that Assyria takes delight in. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat, and all who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. This is a little confusing because it almost sounds like a good promise. It's not. I think it's saying their, their whole agriculture is going to go to pot, so they're only going to be able to eat curds and honey. They're not going to have a lot of other things to work with. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will only be briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. <laughs> Isaiah 8. Let's move on. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Now this is interesting. We talked about how Amos was really one of the first prophets to write things down. And he sort of did that out of political necessity because he was banned from the place where he was supposed to prophesy. You remember that? So Isaiah follows that because God tells him specifically to do so. So you may think of prophets as often writing things down, but it really doesn't start until Amos, and it kind of carries through with a number of the prophets going forward, but it's kind of a new thing. But he also tells him, write with an ordinary pen. Now, it's not a ballpoint pen. <laughs> Obviously, that can't mean... An ordinary pen. There is no such ordinary pen, right? You write with, the only, they only have like one kind of writing utensil. It's either, well, I guess two. Uh, if you were writing in stone, it would be some kind of chisel, but he's not, he's writing on a scroll. So it's some kind of stick with ink. There's no difference between an ordinary pen and a fancy one. What he means by this is write with ordinary writing. In other words, I want you to write in a way which will be accessible to everyone. I want this to be public. Don't just write for the king. Write for everybody to be able to read. So write commonly, write simply, write easily, write clearly, and make it visible and public to as many people as possible. Which is important for us to know because up to now it looks like he's just having this conversation with Ahaz, but now as we think back about what we've been reading, he's been telling us about his conversation with Ahaz, so who's he telling? Everyone, right? He wants everyone to know, hey, if you don't like what's happening or what's going to happen, I tried to tell your king and he didn't listen. So now it's up to you. You have a choice to trust God and his preservation or not. And we'll see that in a lot of the rest of Isaiah, that a lot of it is his calling to them, not saying things will change. But as they don't change, as the judgment comes upon you, can you trust God? That's the call. Can you prepare for the judgment by trusting God. That's what he's beginning to say to everybody because the king didn't listen. And the people can't change it, but they can trust God. Well, and they haven't been following God anyway. Right, they also need to repent. They need to do this. So he's giving them the opportunity. All right, so let's keep going. Take a large scroll, large is right, and write on it with an ordinary pen. Uh, he starts, he says, write this. Write, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, which means... Speed to the spoil, hurry to the plunder. Okay? 
So I called in Uriah the priest, and this is such a weird turn in a moment, but it'll all make sense. I called in Uriah the priest, and Zechariah, son of Jeremiah, as reliable witnesses for me, that I made love to the prophetess. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's not what they're witnessing. I don't think it is. (laughs) They're witnessing the writing of this. Let me keep reading, and it'll begin to make more sense. And, And by the way, prophetess here just means his wife. Okay. Don't, don't, don't be worried about that either. <laughs> Which brings an interesting question. Prophetess clearly at times in scripture means a woman who prophesies. This is not diminishing that. Here he, they're calling his wife a prophetess. Does it mean that it can also just mean the wife of a prophet? Or does it mean she herself is a prophet also? We don't actually know. So, but we do know it's his wife. So everybody can breathe a sigh of relief by that. Because it does sound sort of random all of a sudden. <laughs> but here's what happens. Then I made love to the prophetess, and she gave birth, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said to me, Name him Maharshalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Here's what happens. He says, Write this name down and get these people to witness it. That you wrote this name down before you gave birth to a child. So he does that. Then he sleeps with his wife gives birth to a child, and names his child, speed to the spoils and hurry to the plunder. Again, poor Isaiah has some interesting kids. Uh, A remnant will be preserved, and speed to the plunder, and whatever it is, speed to the spoils, hurry to the plunder. And the reason is, it's, it's it's an interesting parallel. God says, look, you didn't accept that I gave you a timeline that would tell you when Assyria was, was, that would tell you when Aram and Israel were going to be gone. I'm going to give you another timeline. It's also going to apply to the judgment of Israel and Aram, but now it's also going to apply to the judgment of Judah. And this timeline is Isaiah's own child. So Isaiah becomes a prophet, and he says this later, whose very existence and children are a constant reminder of the prophecies. Anytime he's like, have you met my child? People are like, yes, and I wish I hadn't. Poor kid, it's not his fault, but his name kind of concerns me a little bit. So, this, but this is a different prophecy than before with the virgin? It's a different, yes, I think so. Because this is clearly not his first child, so she yeah. was probably not a virgin at the time he made it. And she's probably not a young maiden by any stretch. So, so this is the kid you don't want your, your kids to play with. They take all their stuff. Quickly. Oh, that's so sad. They're like, do you want to play with a remnant shall be preserved or speed to the plunder? Are you kidding? That's an easy question. What, All right. what does that mean, like speed to the plunder? The wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria before this child knows how to say my father or my mother. It will okay. happen fast. Okay. That's what it means. It's a timeline. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria, with all his pomp. And again, I love the way that Isaiah just explains his prophecies as he goes. He's like, by the floodwaters, I mean the king of Assyria. These are some of the clearest prophecies, by the way. And again, this is before it happens. We get to look back in history and see that Isaiah is spot on, which is very cool. So here's what he's saying. Here you are in Judah. You've had some really good kings, right? You had Adaziah, who was pretty good. You had Jotham, who was very good. You had David initially. You've had some good kings. They've been kind of gentle. 
you know, Judah's been kind of a small power. It's not been a huge powerhouse all this time. It's, but you've been experiencing kind of the gentle grace of God rolling through your, your city. And you didn't like it. It wasn't enough for you. You wanted the power of other nations. You wanted the power of Assyria and the power of Aram. Well, you want it, you're going to feel it. <laughs> you don't want the gentle grace of God, you're going to feel the judgment of God. That's kind of the, the scary warning here. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. So, yes, this is the judgment for Israel and Aram, and I gave you chance to trust that I was going to do this, and then I would have perhaps preserved you. I'm still going to preserve you, because the water is not going to go over your head. But it is going to come up to your neck. That's not great, is it? <laughs> and it's true. Assyria's conquest stops short of actually destroying Judah. This is Israel's conquest and exile comes before Judah's. Judah ends up being conquered by Babylon, not Assyria. So it does come up to their neck, but not quite over their head. Okay, so we're, we're kind of seeing both of Isaiah's children's prophecies at this moment as well. A remnant will be spared but the judgment will come fast. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. Emmanuel, fascinating. Now let's tie this back to the previous prophecy. Previous prophecy said, God wants to give you a sign that he will preserve you, that he will preserve what's happening. And this sign will be that a young maiden will give birth to a child and she will name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Trust God to be with you and you don't have to worry about Israel. Trust God to be with you, you don't have to worry about Aram. Trust God to be with you, you don't need to reach out to Assyria. Trust God to be with you to protect you. Now he's saying, you didn't trust God to be with you to protect you. Guess what? God's going to be with you in judgment. It's a, it's a very different feel to the term Emmanuel now. <laughs> mm -hmm. The point being, God's here either way. Which side do you want to be on? So as he's saying this publicly too, as he's writing this down for everyone to be able to read, he's saying to them, the judgment's coming. Do you want to be under the protection of the God who's coming to judge or under the judgment of the God who's coming to judge? Do you really think that any other king can protect you from the judgment of the God who's coming to judge? <laughs> Do you think any other king even wants to? <laughs> Make your choice. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. How's that? Fight! Fight all you want and die. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Ouch. This is not the Emmanuel God called for Ahaz to begin with, but it's the Emmanuel he's gotten. It's a really, it's an interesting turn of phrase. It doesn't happen, you don't hear this in the Old Testament a lot. David never said, I mean, he, he understood the sovereignty of God, but he never used the terms in these ways. He didn't say, you know, it doesn't matter what we do, we're going to die because God is with us. <laughs> but that's kind of what Isaiah is saying. The judgment's coming. And... All of the ways he says this, when he talks about the king of Assyria as floodgates, and he, or floods, and he talks about the king of Assyria as whatever the other picture he used for him earlier, I've forgotten already. 
His point is, that's all the king of Assyria is. He's a tool in God's hands. It's not really about the king of Assyria. It's about God. So when you reached out to the king of Assyria, that was just dumb. Because he's just a tool in the hands of God. And he totally could have protected you from it. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not, con- call, do not call conspiracy everything this people call a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. This is his message to the people. Don't follow everybody. His, his phrasing here seems very interesting to me because there are definitely people who will be afraid of all sorts of conspiracies and people and things. And there are people in our country right now who would find it much easier to believe in an almost unbelievable level of competence of humanity to believe that they are capable of controlling the world who find it impossible to believe that God can control the world. And that's what he's saying here. You're going to hear people say, ooh, we got to protect ourselves from them and protect ourselves from them and we got to watch out for this conspiracy and we got to fear them and we got to fear that. Stop. The only one you have to fear is God. God is the power behind everything. God is the one you look to. He is the one you would regard as holy. Remember Isaiah talked about holy otherness. He's independent. He's not controlled by these conspiracies. He is the one you are to fear, the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare, and many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Is this the way God wanted to be with his people? No. But they've rejected him. And God is God. He's not going to stop being God. And if they choose to sacrifice their children to the fires, that's not God. God says, I'm not party to that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't work with that. I judge that. Meredith, you had your hand up. Oh, no, I'm just saying, I mean, that is what they were doing because they had all these, like, yeah, they were, like, sacrificing their kids, and then they had all these high places, and then they were doing all these practices for all these different gods and... Yep, and Isaiah, again, is, is calling... I don't think the king's going to change, the judgment's going to come. But writing this publicly is because Isaiah is still giving people a chance to decide. And Isaiah has said where he's going to be. I'm not going to follow these people. I'm still here. I mean, the flood's going to come. But I'm not going to follow these people. I'm just going to fear God. All of it comes to this. God can be a protector or a judge. You can trust him, and Emmanuel will be a bless. Uh, what did I put here? Oh, you can trust him, and the Emmanuel will be a blessed thought, or you can trust in other powers to protect you, and then God with us becomes a warning. And that's the choice that's kind of before them. And he says you can prepare, prepare for the future by waiting upon the Lord, by trusting in him. He's about to use the word wait upon the Lord. I want you to think about what that means for them right now. Ahaz's problem was he didn't want to wait on the Lord because he was afraid he would be dead if he waited on the Lord. Do you see that? Sure, I got these timelines, but those timelines are too long. Waiting on the Lord is almost never passive and easy in Scripture. Because when God calls you to wait on the Lord, it's usually when there's pressure on you to do something other than wait. 
This is the Red Sea. When the Pharaoh's army is coming up behind him and God says, stand here all night and wait for the waters to part. But the army's right there. Right? Well, that's where they are. Aram and Israel are right there. What do you mean? Wait upon the Lord. What if he doesn't come through? Well, ask him for a sign. Let him prove to you he'll come through. Nope. Because I don't want to wait. Because I have a better plan. A better plan is the king of Assyria. He says this, bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. Who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. Is it an accident he mentions his children here? <laughs> no, they are the reminders of the prophecies. I'm going to trust in the God who says a remnant will be spared and who says the judgment will be fast. That's the God I'm trusting. We are signs and symbols, in case, again, you missed it. He's very clear. When I speak of my children, I'm telling you, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. By the way, Isaiah, the name Isaiah means salvation comes from the Lord. So he himself is a sign. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. He says, look. You go to mediums, you go to spiritists, you go to other people for power. So this is kind of the common man's equivalent of Ahaz's mistake. Ahaz goes to the king of Assyria. The average guy can't go to the king of Assyria, but when he wants help, he can go to these occultists. He can go to these other powers. He says, you go to them, but how dumb is that? You're going to the dead to help, to help with the living. They're dead. They weren't so good at living. But God's alive. And he says, and people who do not speak according to the testimony of God, According to the words and the law and even this prophecy, if they don't speak according to these things, there's no light. There's nothing there. There's no enlightenment or revelation. There's nothing helpful for you. And those people themselves will wander. And then one day when things didn't work out the way they thought they would, they will look up and they will curse God. Because they didn't listen to God. Don't be one of those people, says Isaiah. I'm not going to be one of those people. And if you need to remember, I'm here, my children are here. The judgment is coming. A remnant will be spared. Salvation is from the Lord. So where do you go for help? Where do you go for help? They will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter I'm going to read the first three verses of the next chapter, and that's actually where we're going to close. Because, I think it's important to see, because I don't want to leave you guys in gloom and darkness. That's just a bad <laughs> place to leave but, but, but notice what he's saying here. He's saying, he's given the first part of the choice. You can choose to look to other powers. You can commit the Ahaz sin all over again. 
and you can choose to look to other powers to protect you. And if you do, all that happens is you will, when you do finally look up, you will only look up in order to curse God. And then you will be lost to darkness and gloom. But when that darkness and gloom comes upon the land, there's another choice. If you're looking for God, if you're trusting him. And so he goes on in this next chapter, he says this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Here Isaiah is in the midst of talking about judgment, and he gets this faraway look in his eyes, and he says, but you know what? The darkness and gloom comes first to Israel. But you know what else is going to come first to Israel? The light of the Messiah to come. There will be a day that that light will dawn there first. And in the same way that the judgment swept over Israel and down through Judah, so also the light to come will swipe through and the nation will be enlarged. And joy will return without diminishing the judgment that he's preaching, without diminishing the need to heed the warning of God, he's also reminding them that this is the God who has promised a remnant will be spared, who has promised salvation comes of the Lord, who has promised ultimately a Messiah who will enlarge the nation of Israel. Do they understand what that means? No. But they understand the concept of joy and freedom and happiness and light and dawn and, and a time will come when they will no longer be destroyed as they are about to be. So he begins to give them hope for the future. Again, is there possible dual layers of this prophecy? I think there's dual layers to almost everything Isaiah says. So part of this is a promise that the exile itself will end. But the expansiveness of the promises he makes sometimes go far beyond what can happen after the exile ends. In fact, there's no way to think of the nation of Israel ever being enlarged from what it was under David, except under the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. It never happens at any other. In other words, Solomon's kingdom was the largest it's ever been. It's never gotten bigger. Ever. In all of history. Unless you include the, 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 the church and Israel and the Gentiles being grafted in. Well, then that's a nation which is much larger. It's a nation of millions and millions and billions <laughs> over history. So he leaves them on the... He doesn't leave them. He keeps going. We're going to leave you on this upturn. If we go too much further, we'll go back down. So we're going to stop here. <laughs> um, he does go for a little bit. And in fact, 9 and 10, we have some clear, again, some clear messianic prophecies. We're about to get to the, the hallelujah chorus here about wonderful counselor, almighty God, which is where, again, that's way too expansive to just be talking about the return from exile. Right? I mean, how can the leader of this new kingdom be almighty God? And, I mean, it just, it's, it's, it just yeah. gets really big. <laughs> it is establishing God's credibility, though. For sure. For sure. Everybody, I mean, like, to them, like, absolutely. you know, for this to happen. Yes, but it only establishes credibility if they listen to Isaiah. You see that, right? Yeah. There's, there's going to be two groups of people, and we see these two groups of people. When the judgment comes, there's going to be two groups of people. There's going to be people who listened to Isaiah and Micah and Hosea and Habakkuk and all the prophets, and who are going to say... Oh, yeah. God promised this, and he promised what we need to do is to <coughs> him, and they're going to. 
And there's going to be a group of people who do what he just said. They're going to look up from the darkness and gloom and they're going to curse God and say, why has he abandoned us? Because they didn't listen. Because they didn't heed the very first thing that Isaiah said to Ahaz, which was shut up and listen. <laughs> Calm down and listen. And that's, we'll see that. People like Daniel are the people who listened. Right? People like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They're the people who listen. So when they're in the middle of the exile, they don't freak out. They cling to God and they're preserved. Right? These are the people that listened. People that didn't are destroyed because they didn't listen, because they don't look to God, because they don't see the credibility, because they didn't listen to begin with. It's interesting that they still credit God with it. Oh, by cursing him? Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's true. All right, so that leads us, we made it, to Isaiah 9. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.